I invite you to join me in a word of prayer. Lord, I'm grateful for the Scriptures and especially the Old Testament. I thank you for Joseph and the example he is and what he teaches us about you. Lord, I ask you to help me now as I preach. And I pray that you would remind each one of us, Lord, of your presence as our good Redeemer. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. The Lord be with you. Hey, thank you for that. Um, I wasn't actually expecting the reply, but I was just trying to make the point that in the Anglican Church, we say the Lord be with you as a way to remind the other person to call to mind the fact that God is with you. It's helpful to remember this, and we need to be reminded often of God's presence. It's very easy for us to forget that He is with us. Um, On the journey retreat, which is our preparation for the teens for confirmation on, um, on that weekend, one of the things the last few years I've done is I've shared a chapter from C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters. And this is his fictional writing about two demons having a, a writing letters back and forth to have a dialogue about how to trip up Christians and how to do the work of their father, Satan, and hurt the enemy, God, and his people. And the... Um, their, their names are Screwtape, who's an uncle, and Wormwood, his nephew. And in this one chapter, he concludes with this, this truth. He says, Do not be deceived, dear Wormwood. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, no longer desiring, but still intending to do our enemy's will, meaning God's will, looks round about a universe from which every trace of him seems to have vanished, and asks why he has been forsaken, and then still obeys. The demons recognize when they get to that moment in a person's life, where a person looks around and says, God clearly is not at work in this universe, and I feel completely forsaken, but I'm still going to obey him because I know he is here. It's at that point that the, the person of faith has won. Faith is strong and shining, and the demons roll over and and lose the battle, is what they recognize there. And I wonder, how are you when you feel forsaken or forgotten? How do you respond when you don't feel God's presence or the circumstances that are happening make you think maybe God doesn't care? Do you forsake God in in response and say, well, God, if I don't feel you, I'm not going to serve you and go the other way? You know, in the account of Joseph's life, he could have despaired of his situation and just let depression take over and laid on his bed in prison and done nothing with the gifts that he had. And of course, then the jailer would not have recognized his gifts and promoted him. He could have just taken a pity party on himself. In the situation where he's been, um, he's being attacked or pursued by this woman, uh, Potiphar's wife, he could have said, well, I'm a slave. I don't have any rights. My life is terrible. I, I, I enjoy something. I'm going to give in. I'm entitled. Where's God anyway? I'll just go along with it. He could have done that. People often do. But one of the things about Joseph's life is that his life is marked by a vision that he had years earlier when he was a teenager. God gave him several dreams of him ruling, actually rising up into power over his brothers and even his father and mother where God had a a specific purpose and plan for Joseph, and he was aware of this. 
Now, back in Genesis 37, he was too immature to be situationally aware, and he was the foolish younger brother, and he was the favorite. He was another victim of bad parenting, and his father favored him and gave him the coat of many colors, and he had this dream, and he foolishly told it to all his brothers, and they said, oh, really? You're going to rule over us? We're going to bow down and worship you? How about this? We're going to kill you and take your, your coat and tear it up. Or better yet, we'll make money and sell you into Egypt, into slavery. Of course, they didn't know what all was playing out at this point. But see, Joseph had this vision that was in the back of his mind. And so despite the hardships, it was kind of guiding him. It was helping him in difficult situations. Now, on a series on the patriarchs, I need to say, Joseph is not a patriarch, technically. The patriarchs were marked by two things. One, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And each one of them, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had God come to them directly and re-up his covenant promises. Abraham, I will bless you, and all peoples will be blessed through your offspring. I will give you this land and your inheritance, and numerous as the stars, and all that. He said it to Isaac, and he said it to Jacob. He does not say that to Joseph. But Joseph is giving us a picture of how God is blessing other people through the offspring of Abraham. And he is, in some ways, a forerunner to Jesus. But one of the things I think that's particularly helpful for us is that Joseph's story helps the hearers, both today and his original audience um, back in the days of the Israelites, get the narrator's point of view. And by that I mean there's this third-person omniscient narrator who is explaining what's happening behind the scenes. Could you imagine if your life was lived in such a way where you heard the narrator? And Mike got this sickness today unaware at first that it would be very useful for God because it would teach him about patience and resting and prayer. Oh, maybe I should stop complaining about a mere cold and like tough it out and look to God to help me and see what he's teaching me. One of my favorite movies is called Stranger Than Fiction. It's with Will Ferrell and Emma Thompson, and Will Ferrell plays a serious character, which is unusual for him. And in Stranger Than Fiction, he can hear the narrator in his own mind. But we, as the watchers of the movie, don't realize it right away because we're used to hearing a narrator narrate the action of a plot in a movie. And so the beginning of the, of the movie, um, he's, a, he's an accountant, and he's very regular about stuff. And it says, Harold Crick used to brush his teeth by counting 10 brush strokes on every tooth. And he's standing in front of the mirror doing this. And you don't realize he's hearing her voice in his head. And as the movie unfolds, he starts to get irritated that she knows his motives better than he does. And she's predicting things that are coming. And then he starts to realize, wait a minute, this narrator is actually writing my life and can write the end of it. And one day he hears this, little did he know that this simple, seemingly innocuous act would result in his imminent death. And he goes, wait, no, 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 wait, what? And he freaks out because he hears what's about to happen. And of course, he's pursuing, he's, gonna find, he's looking for this narrator. Who is she? She's writing the story and she needs to know that she's going to kill him if she doesn't know that he's real. But see, imagine if your life had a narrator that was reminding you and the audience what was happening, where it was going to go, what does this mean? See, knowing the direction things are headed in changes your, your interpretation of the moment. And Joseph had a vision of God raising him up to rule over his brothers and his father and his mother, and, and he, he had this vision, and it was, it was there in the back of his mind. And so... Um, we've known as the readers that Egypt was in the future. It was coming. Back in Genesis 15, God says to Abraham, you need to know that your offspring are going to be enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. 
So all of a sudden, the brothers of Joseph sell him into the Ishmaelites, and the Ishmaelites take him down to Egypt. So we pick up in, verse 30, in chapter 39, and it says, Now Joseph had been brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an official of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites who had brought him down there. That's how chapter 39 of Genesis starts out. It tells us that Egypt now is coming into play. Now, Joseph doesn't know maybe necessarily all this, but he, he knows a little bit. And right away, the original hearers of this, the Israelites that would have read these stories and heard these stories, they in their mind think of Egypt as the place of slavery. Or it's the place of escape. We escape the war, and let's say the king of Syria or someone is Babylon, whatever's coming in, we're going to flee to Egypt as our strength. Or there's a famine in our land. Instead of turning to God, we're going to flee down to Egypt and go get food there. It was a place of escape and a place of enslavement. And so it represents something really big. Now, it's interesting, right away, the narrator in chapter 39 uses the word Egyptian several times. He's not just Potiphar, he's Potiphar the Egyptian. And as the narrator's going through the story, he even refers to him as the Egyptian. He brought him down there. Um, the Lord was with them. Let's see, Joseph found favor in his sight. Um, the Lord, ble- this is verse five. The Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Why didn't he call him Potiphar? Well, because he's bringing up that idea of Egypt as being a place of escape and a place of enslavement. This Egypt thing is really important. Potiphar is called the Egyptian. And it's like, it's like the, the narrator of 30, chapter 39 is saying to the Israelites, hey, Israel, God is still with you. They would have been ens- enslaved later in Assyria and then in Babylon and then us today in sin. There is slavery. There, is pro- there are problems. And we're tempted to doubt that God is still with us. Hey, people of God, God is still with you even in the midst of the hardship. Now, this chapter is bookended by a very similar phrase. In verse 2 and 3, it says this, The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So God was with him and caused him to succeed. And then, Later, when he's in jail, in verse 21, it says, but the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And then it says, the keeper of the prison, verse 23, paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. That's the bookend of this. It's real tempting as a preacher to go, ah, here's a moralistic story of how to beat temptation. Three steps to beating temptation and be like Joseph. But this is not a wisdom writing. Joseph is not set up as the new wisdom teacher like in the Proverbs we saw. It's not saying learn from his lesson and avoid temptation. It's pointing us to the Lord, the Lord's presence. He's being prospered because God is with him. The Lord is named eight times in 23 verses, and he's called God once on the lips of Joseph himself. And what we're finding here is that God is at work. God is with you like God was with Joseph, and God redeems suffering. We're starting to see that suffering has a purpose in God's economy, and he uses it. He redeems it. Now, it is helpful to get a pretty good anatomy of of the lust problem in here. 
and it's the middle section of this, the conflict. The wife of Potiphar lusts after Joseph. It tells us in verse 6 that Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. There are only two people in the Bible that describes, him and his mother Rachel. It says, her sister was weak of eyes, but she was attractive to look at, beautiful, and of a good form. So she was beautiful and shapely. And same thing here. Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. There's only two places in the Bible, which I don't know necessarily what that means. It's just unusual. It points this out because it leads her to start to desire him, but in a lustful way. And that's how this starts out. That's how lust starts out. It starts out with the eyes. After a time, his master's wife cast her eyes upon him and then daily grows in a fantasy of why she needs him. And day after day, she says to him, lie with me, lie with me, lie with me. And the thing about this is that she cares nothing for the whole person. She, this is not God's intention for sex or intimacy. She just has a need and wants to have it satisfied, and she's in the position of being the rich person, and he's the property of the, of the house, and so she just wants to take it. And the, the truth of lust is pointed out here when she finally realizes he's never going to cave in, so she makes up this whole lie, and it's a capital punishment for a foreigner slave to do this to someone, and she knows it's not going to go well for him. I suspect her husband probably was extra merciful and put him in the king's prison instead of just hanging him or whatever. He gets some mercy here, but that's God's hand at work as well. See, what we've got is, is Joseph in a really difficult scenario. He can't win this scenario. But a person who's walking in a place of entitlement because they think God has forsaken me might think, well, you know what? I'm just going to give in. It's just easier to give in. Maybe it'll help me in some way have favor with her for a little while, whatever. But he doesn't do that. And his words are really instructive. It's not because it's wrong, because it's adultery. It, it's not because the master said, you can't have my wife. He says, it's because it's a wicked sin against God. He recognizes this sin would cause him to have a fracture in his relationship with God. And that's what's driving him. Joseph is able to withstand this situation because of his faith, because God is with him. And verse 8 and 9, he cares what God thinks of him. How could we do this wicked thing and sin against God? It might be socially acceptable because I'm your property as a slave, but that doesn't make it morally right. And he's willing to go down on that principle and die in prison. He's willing to, to lose it all because he knows that God has a plan for his life and he's going to trust God. How about you? When things get hard, what do you do? When you don't feel God's presence, do you turn to the world? Do you go in the entitlement way? Do you just look out for number one? Or do you cry out to God and go, God, I know you're with me. I know you're good. I don't understand my circumstances, but help me. You see, the scriptures show over and over again that God is with you, that God redeems suffering, and that God suffered for you because God is a present redeemer. That's the big point here in this. God is a present redeemer. And Joseph is an early forerunner to Jesus. Just like Joseph's suffering in Egypt eventually led to the saving of many lives from starvation, from a famine for seven years, even bigger, Jesus' suffering saved people from an eternal death. Many, many lives, many more lives, and still continues to do so. And what people say on the topic of suffering and hardship is they go, well, if God was good, he wouldn't allow this suffering to happen unless he's not all-powerful. 
and maybe he can't. But if he's all-powerful, then he can't be good, or he would have stepped in and solved this problem. And while we can't exactly answer it, we also can say this. God is not aloof to suffering, nor is he above it. He goes into it personally. And that's what the cross is all about. We have a God who comes down and enters into suffering and human sin and brokenness and suffers for us and is with us in our suffering as well. So regardless of the the dilemma of why does he allow it to happen, we know that he redeems it and uses it. And that's one of the key teachings of Scripture. And when we think about names for Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, he's come with us. And he promised to remain with us. In the Great Commission, he said, I'm with you to the very end of the age. Whether you feel it or not, God is with you. That is his promise. And as Romans 8, 28 says, he works good for those who are called according to his purpose. He, he can take bad things and work them for good because he's a present redeemer. He redeems things. And so the Apostle Paul can say things like, looking ahead, you know, thinking of the narrator's perspective again, Looking ahead, the glory that is coming for believers is so great that this light momentary affliction is not even worth comparing. Now, that's hard to think of right in the moment when you're being thrown into jail and falsely accused and whatever and suffering. But as Amazing Grace says, 10,000 years from now, bright shining as the sun, literally 10,000 years from now, when you look back at whatever the suffering was, the hardship, the temptation in your life, you're going to chuckle and go, I can't believe that felt so hard. If only I could have seen where I am now, it would have been so easy. If only I had the full narrator's perspective. If I could just bless or be blessed by God by having that perspective. And you know what? We do. We actually have it because we know where this goes. We know how this book ends. We know what is coming. And so we find that we're able to press through the hardship. We're able to cry out to God and ask him to help us. And the promise to Genesis, Genesis to Abraham was through your offspring, all peoples will be blessed. The crazy thing about how God redeems is not only does he use um, suffering and hardship to bring about good, he does it not just in your life, but in other people's lives. Other people are blessed through what you go through. So he's building this community of, of good things. Feel it or not, he is with you. And I want to encourage you this morning to renew your trust in his goodness. God is a present redeemer. Would you pray with me? Lord, um, we come to you in our hardships. This life is hard, and it's easy for us to look down into the, the pain of the moment and forget the big picture. I am grateful for the example of Joseph here, but even more so, I'm, I'm grateful for Jesus coming and suffering for us, and promising to be with us. Lord, help us to remember that. Help us to cry out to you. Lord, protect us from a desire to escape or to become enslaved. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, this morning we're, um, we're shortening. We've been on hold a little bit for a while. Do we have a plan that some way to move forward either by pledges that might go beyond